Hello and welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I am your host, Ben Kreider, and today I'm going to be talking about the OKC Blues' latest game against the Stockton Kings, Alexei Pukushevsky's debut game, how some of the other assignments did, and a couple standouts off the Exhibit 10 list. And then I'm also going to be giving you guys kind of some takes on some rumors that have come up in the trade market as of late. Cam Reddish of the Hawks and Kevin Knox the second headline those two. So I'll give some potential offers and my takes on how those two fit with the roster. And like always, guys, I'm going to be giving a very special offer from my good friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook. So you do not want to miss out on that. But starting things out, I want to talk about the Blues game against the Stockton Kings. They go into this one. OKC Blue are 6-4. and four, The Kings are 5-5. Five and five. The Blue have looked really good when you look at like plus minuses, just overall statistics. They're looking pretty good just like last year. But when you're looking at the standings, they got to get a bit higher. So this game was pretty important. They have their next game literally tonight at 8 against the Kings. And then they get into winter showcase play. But they really needed this one. So they go into the game. They have just a whole plethora of NBA assignments. You have Poku. Isaiah Roby is back for his third contest. Teo made the drop down. And then you had some other guys as well, like Xavier Simpson. He was back. I know for a couple games earlier on in the year, he was actually doing stuff for Team USA Basketball. So he was good to go. And then for the two-way guys and Paul Watson and Aaron Wiggins, they both had do-not plays for this one. With Wiggins, we all know what he did on Wednesday. He was starting in his second career uh, NBA game, at least as a starter. And then Watson was just out uh, for the night. But yeah, it made for a pretty interesting contest. And it was kind of neck and neck to begin the first quarter. Actually, Stockton had the edge, but a late 24-12 closing run for the Blues set them up top 36-29 to through one quarter. A lot of points were scored there. And then you go into the second quarter, and Stockton is rolling. They drop 13 consecutive points. Marcus Graves hits two triples, and then you have Queda. I think he was a second-round pick for the Kings. He ends up getting an and one off of a jam. So they were looking good through the first four minutes of the quarter. But the Blue were able to claw back. I think they were down, I guess, six off of that stretch. So they got five of those points back. They were only down one point, 57 to 56 at halftime. The big story at the end there was Melvin Frazier Jr. got six of the team's last 10 points. A lot of that came at the line. He also had a layup as well. But you go into halftime and it is neck and neck. And when you actually break down the statistics for some of the assignees here, Poku, he was already in foul trouble. He had three personal fouls after just 13 minutes. Obviously, he did have to start there. Went one of three, had four boards. Isaiah Roby, he was looking good, had three blocks by half. Kind of searching for that number one scorer. You found it in Melvin Frazier Jr. He was up to 15 points by halftime. 6 of 10 shooting. Pretty much only got it uh, right around the basket. And then Roby clinched double figures with 10. But you go into that second half needing another push like what they had in the first quarter. And that is exactly what they got. They started rocking and rolling from the interior. 
to begin the third quarter. Six of their first seven baskets came in the paint. The one outlier was a Melvin Fraser Jr. three, and right after that seven-shot span, Lindy Waters actually hit a three for himself. So they were on a really good run offensively. Teo was looking good in the early segments too. Three of those first six baskets came off of his layups, and it was a full 12-minute stretch of dominance on the offensive end. They didn't look anywhere in the mid-range during the quarter. It was either right in the paint or three-point shots. So they were working at just two of the levels, but they almost doubled the Kings' scoring output in that quarter. They outscored them actually by double, 37-18. to 18. 22 points in the paint. They went for 11 of those ones. And then they went 5 of 11 from distance. So everybody was getting theirs in the quarter. Got them up 18 going into the fourth, 93 to 75. And they just continued to apply pressure. They got the lead all the way up to 26 in the fourth. Ended up taking the game by 20, 121 to 101. OKC comes out of this one 7 and 4 on the year, while the Kings are 6 and 5. And oh my goodness, there is a lot to talk about from the assignments and also the normal G League squad. Every single game seems to be a new starting five for this team because you get Poku in. First G League game since his stretch uh, over last year in the bubble. Isaiah Roby comes back, so that's already a new front court. DJ Wilson had to get pushed a little bit to the wayside there. Same goes with other players such as Olivier Saar, who didn't really get to play much. Only seven minutes for him. But you kind of change the dynamics of everything. Teo, he's kind of accustomed, so it's not really a surprise to see him, but he got 30 minutes. So you end up getting this kind of stretch where it's a different team, but every single time they find their identity on the offense and they seem to be pretty damn solid. When you look at the box score for the Blue in this game, this was one of their worst shooting performances of the season. They shot just 23% from the three-point line, 7 of 30 in all. I talked about that 5 of 11 uh, three-point outing they had in the third quarter, so let's just take that away. You're looking at them shooting 2 of 19 in the other three. That's 10.5%. So they really couldn't shoot from there. The mid-range was not a main segment of their game. So what did they do? They just kept driving inside at will, picking up points in the paint. They had 70 in all in this one. I remember looking at the Moses Brown days when you had Brown, Yurt 7. Literally all they did uh, was throw entry passes inside or get offensive boards and you're good. They still kind of didn't get to the 70 mark that often. I think the highest they had, don't quote me, was probably like 72, 74. So they were right on that level against the Kings, and they could not stop them. You have Queda, who's a pretty good center. I remember at Utah State, one of his strong suits was actually blocking shots. He doesn't even have many. He gets fouled out after 16 minutes. Robert Woodard. He's also decent. I remember last year he was doing well. He had two blocks, but you eliminated their top target in Queda, and that's just where all the dominoes started to fall. Your top shot blockers out. Got to outsource guys like Emmanuel Terry, who's good. I think he actually played with the blue for maybe a little bit 
Uh, if not, he was he was there for some training camps. I do like him, uh, but it didn't matter. They didn't have the size to match up for the blue, and they didn't have a lot of seven-footers. You talk about Poku. Yeah, he's a seven-footer. Was he slashing in the basket doing crazy stuff? No, he was not. These are guys like DJ Wilson just piling up points right around the basket. Jalen Horde driving in for penetrations. Isaiah Roby looking around the basket. Melvin Frazier Jr., he was living at the paint for fouls and shots. So everybody just started charging in on the Kings. They could not stop all areas. Total invasion inside, and they were fine there. So they kind of were able to transform their game uh, despite the threes not falling in. They didn't need the threes to fall in, of course, because they win by 20. But one of the big things when you look at this game, just the sheer amount of foul calls. And when you look at the G League, Fouls are a lot uh, more different, I guess. Foul, free throws. Free throws are, are a lot more different. Because when you get fouled, in, unless it's the final two minutes of a half, you're going up for one foul shot. If you get fouled at the three-point line, you're taking one shot worth three points. If it's right around the basket, one shot worth two points. They take 21 free throw shots in this game, hits 15 of them. And then on the other end, the Kings were able to get 16 foul shots, made 12. So the whistle was being blown pretty much left and right in this one, and that's what the Blue were working towards. They wanted to just keep piling it up. If they didn't make a layup, well, they're going to get a shot at the foul line, and they were doing a pretty good job there. So that's why they took it. Compare that to the Kings' just 36 points in the paint. Uh, you know what the real difference was in this one. So a lot of just group effort here. I mean, you look at some of the other stats too, like 16 offensive rebounds. You don't see guys dropping like eight offensive rebounds anymore because there is uh, no Moses Brown on this roster, of course. But everybody just chipping in and posting a pretty damn solid finishing product. So just looking at this uh, from the assignments first. Main one is Alexei Pokusevsky. That's what everyone was thinking about. That's the main reason I'm doing a story on the blue. If I had the time, I'd be doing recaps on them literally every game. This is a very fun team. But yeah, for this one, he goes out for 27 minutes, goes 2 of 6 from the field, only had 6 points, did have 10 rebounds though, 2 assists, managed to stay out of foul trouble in that second half, so he only finished with 3 personals, and then he also didn't have any turnovers. He had a, a couple of reps where he was the primary ball handler. I wouldn't say he was the top option, uh, maybe as much as he was last season with the blue first game, so I'm not really surprised he wasn't the guy, but he did have a couple more reps than he has with the Thunder this year, so I was pretty impressed with that. In terms of the shots not going in, also not too concerned when you're looking at poku right now especially with him just getting back into the system i don't really care what the bottom stat line is i want to see more of that potential being grasped at that's what happened last season the splits were not amazing for him in the g league when he came back to the nba he was averaging 11.3 shooting 31 percent from distance and had way better shooting splits than what he did uh, in his product with the blue so it's fine by me I think the one thing is just consistency. I don't know if uh, Poku's going to be the guy where he's just bouncing back and forth, kind of like some of these other players. I think if it was up to me, you just keep him for the next probably two weeks. I really want to see him in this winter showcase. So you have this game, you have the game against the Kings, and then the two more. I believe Poku is not on assignment for this game against the Kings, though. So I don't know what's going to happen. 
I really think that the best way to utilize Poku and the way to get the most out of him is probably going to come by just getting him accustomed to the blue once again and then giving him more reps there because currently with the Thunder, yeah, he does get his moments off the bench, but even when he does perform well, he's not going to be going out for 25 minutes. There's a set rotation. Here with the blue, he's able to get the minutes he needs, and Presti's able to call on Grant Gibbs and just anybody and say, we're giving Poku minutes, and then Poku is obviously going to be getting minutes. So, debut wasn't, you know, this out-of-the-park hit like some might have imagined. This is fine, though. This is a decent starting step with him. He almost got a double-double, and for Isaiah Roby, He's 3 of 3 on double-doubles this year with the blue. He got 10 points and 11 rebounds in this game. Two assists, five blocks, which was monstrous for him. Did it all in 28 minutes. Couldn't really connect from the floor. Shot just 2 of 8. Only had one attempt from 3. That's a bit of an outlier from his past two. But he did get to the charity stripe for four separate shots. Hit three of them. And that's really all that you guys need. So he picks up six points at the line, four off the interior, and he was good to go. This was really nothing different here with Isaiah Roby. He's shown that he's kind of uh, past, I'm not going to say past the G League level because he's not dropping a 30-piece and dominating and all that, but he's holding his own, and he's really proven that he can defend the small ball fives at the G League ranks. It's really just up to the minutes and the opportunities that are going to be found uh, potentially in the NBA roster, whether it's due to injuries, due to assignments, due to the COVID list, something. But he just does not have his opening right now within the main roster. And that same story kind of goes for Teo as well, because you look at the emergence of Trey Mann dropping nine points in the last game. Got to remember, though, crazy like buzzer beater three and a posterizer dunk had one on Wayne Ellington against the Lakers a couple games ago. Like, he is in the driver's seat, and I think he secured that six-man spot. Not really up for debate. And then you also have Ty Jerome. So he has also been pushed to the side where, instead of being that minute leader from last year, he's now starting for the blue, trying to work his way back up when, really, it's going to be based on other people at the top falling as opposed to him kind of merging out of nowhere. I think at that point, it's just waiting for your place. Maybe he overtakes Ty Jerome. I think he is on assignment, so... That's his one shot, um, but yeah, it's going to have to come uh, probably from Ty, and even then, the minutes aren't going to be guaranteed for him, but anyways, he goes into this one, also has a double-double, not in the way you would probably guess, though. He has 16 points on 6 of 13 shooting, 0 of 4 from 3, which the whole team shot bad, but you want to see him in particular probably making those shots because that is how he found himself on the G League roster, but... He was able to get two of three foul shots to go in, got a team-high 14 rebounds. Three of those came on the offensive end, had four assists, three steals, and had five turnovers. So for this game, Teo was really just a slasher, and that's what I love to see from him. He's a very good slasher, and when you look at the stats from last year, you probably wouldn't know it. If you look at his tape from when he was playing in France, you definitely would have known it. Really beautiful push shot from him. He doesn't bring it out all that often. When he does, it has had some troubles at the NBA level, but it's looked good in the G League. Same goes with just his finishing ability. He has a really good touch around the baskets. He's not the fastest guy, 
but he's able to turn the corner, get the shots that he needs, and he's been able to get some contact. And oh, in the brief stints he's had back in the last month, I'd say, with the Thunder, he's been a foul magnet in his minimal minutes. So he's established himself there. It just comes down to the three-point shots. You got a quartet of threes. None of them go in, but everything else, I say he passes with flying colors. I obviously want to see him get more than four assists. He's done that multiple times. He's been the assist leader, uh, but... You know, when it comes down to everything that was going on, he was not the primary ball handler. There really was not one. It was more or less just by committee. Someone was taking it up. Someone was kicking it out. And you saw a lot of penetrations and entry passes yield some baskets. The assist leader actually came from Xavier Simpson here. As I said, he came back from a Team USA stint. There is some uh, gig going on there. I know he is on the 5v5, or he was. And Charlie Brown Jr., who was on the Thunder last season, he was actually on the 3v3 one. He got a gold medal out of it, too. So good for him. But Xavier comes back as a bench guy. He was the starter last season for the Blue. He comes in now. You have Teo, so obviously he's got to be the sixth man. He was still pretty damn good, though. Only went for four points, two of five from the field, 0 of one from distance, but three rebounds, five assists, and only one turnover. He's a very good passer, and the thing with him, he's just like, uh, I'd say, a Teo or a Ty Drome in the sense that he's not going to, you know, wow you with the speed. He's a pretty big guard, and he's not tall. I, I think when you kind of look at his measurables there, that's one of the things that pops out. Like, his body type is not this slim down dude, but he uses that to his advantage when he gets inside. He has a really nice sky hook that comes out of his bag every once in a while, and for the most part, guards cannot defend that in the G League, so that's been a good addition to his arsenal, but also him off a high ball screen is a very good decision maker there, even off of kicking it to the corner, he's very smart, so you don't see a lot of turnovers from Xavier, and that's a pretty big deal when you have a lot of these flashy guys like Poku, uh, like I guess Trey Mann when he was out here, you can rack up the turnovers pretty quickly. So you need a fundamentally sound guard. That's what Xavier Simpson is, and that's what he did uh, in this game. He really provided that extra spurt of playmaking ability when it was needed. But going beyond that, I want to go to the top performer of this game. That was Melvin Frazier Jr. He goes off for a season-high 27 points. That's the most he's had in both of his seasons with the OKC Blue. So that's the best game he's had in a blue jersey. And then he also gets four rebounds to go along with it. Had five fouls, no steals, no blocks, but offensively, he was a powerhouse. Looked amazing in transition. Had a couple breakaway jams. and get a, a hop step or a euro step as well that he had in there to a scoop and score layup. Didn't really look all that great from three. Now, the two shots that did go in off the catch and shoot were beautiful. He was better than the majority of these guys from distance anyways, but... Two of six, not bad. Uh, when you look at his overall clip, he was shooting about 55% from distance going into this game. It's going to drop it a bit, but he's still been one of the more steady shooters on this OKC Blue roster and in the NBA G League as a collective. Best part of his game, though, had to come down to his slashing ability. Went 8 of 10 on twos in this game, and when they didn't go in typically came with a foul to go along with it. So he got some and ones, also had three trips to the foul line, hit all three attempts. So he kind of broadened his horizons. Most of the season, 
He's been locked up to this role where he's just been a catch-and-shoot player, and that's about all you're going to get from him. This time, he gets to work at all three levels, and he chooses to just hound them inside, which really did help him out. He's not an isolation player. When you look at his highlights from this game, there's not a lot of up-top action. A lot of it comes from some backdoor cuts operating out of that corner and then also operating downhill. I really like him as a player. I've talked about it literally in the last week. I think two days ago was my little segment on Melvin here. And there have been some new rule changes that I'll talk about in the upcoming future, probably tomorrow actually, that might help him out and getting a new contract, but he just continues to impress, had the 20-piece not too long ago, a 17-piece off the bench as well, he's just been so productive in his minutes, 27 points in 27 minutes, the man that has that two-way contract that I've said, I don't think he's so safe, is Paul Watson Jr., he doesn't get to play, he gets the starting gig, and he put up a stat line that's going to make it hard to push him back down to the bench, even if Paul Watson returns to the lineup so I'd say he was my number one moving uh moving beyond that though Rob Edwards too Rob Edwards is a monster and this was not his biggest game in terms of point production you look at uh, a mid-season spurt from him which probably came three maybe four games ago he was averaging like 18 points off the bench he had an 18 piece a 19 piece he might have even broken the seal of 20 uh, and it's all coming off these 20 to 25 minute samples he never gets to play in the starting unit now Personally, I don't think that's a, a bad coaching decision. We saw it last year. He had, I think, one time as the starter with the blue, and it didn't work well. He works amazing in that second unit, just kind of having his own playing field to work with. In isolation, he's a monster, so you get more reps there when he's with that second unit, and he continues to produce. He's in his own world. He's always going to be an outlier on the stat sheet, and that's just kind of what comes with being that microwave-type guy. So he goes out there... Uh, shoots 13 attempts in 20 minutes, goes 5 of 13, didn't get to the charity stripe in this one, but he made up for it, hit a team high, three triples, Melbourne was second place there with two, so that kind of tells you the dis uh, distribution here, not a lot of threes were going down, but Rob Edwards is going to hit it, he's going to play his own game every single time, and it yields a lot of baskets, 13 points for him, he's still sitting atop a really good stat line on this season. He's averaging 12.5 points across 11 games. And his typical sample is 20 minutes anyways. So if you want to amp that up to per 36, per, uh, per 48, he's going to be looking very solid there as well. He's throwing up threes at will, which is obviously a good thing. I really want him to be taking those shots. He's averaging just around 7 a game right now, hitting 35% of them. Last year, he shot 44% from distance. I'm not going to look too much into it. I think he's probably still just as good of a shooter, if not better, because he's tapped into that second level a little bit more, and he's gotten his head down and dirty on those penetrations. So Rob Edwards has been amazing. I still don't know why the opportunity has not come up for him, whether it's with another G League team that might have a better situation for him, a two-way spot that it would open up, or something along those lines, because he is one of the most lethal scorers in the G League, and I think he deserves more minutes. It's hard to come by. It's a hard ask because Teo's always going to be there. Poku might be there. Roby might be there on any, any given night. But off the Exhibit 10s, he's always going to be one of those top three dogs on the roster. And another guy who's looked really impressive, talked about him in my SI story, 
DJ Wilson. The three-point arc has not been his strong suit this year. It's been his strong suit the entirety of his career to this point, but it doesn't matter. Has not affected him in the G League play. Shot 104 from distance in this game. Ended up going 5 of 8 off those twos, though. Gets a 6 of 12 pallet there. 2 of 3 at the foul line. Picks up 17 points and 8 rebounds in a 21-minute cut in this game continues to put up the numbers he's looked really good at the five for the blue this season the only thing that i've said and i said it literally 30 seconds ago it's that three ball it needs to hit some sort of levels it hasn't affected them really in terms of the wins and loss columns yet but if he wants to make that transition to the nba he's got to get back up on those numbers because that's how he was a first round selection in the first place if he was not hitting threes with the michigan wolverines I don't think he would have been drafted. I think he would have been a second round pick maybe, but that's where he lived and died when he was out there with Michigan. But as a G League player, he's been one of the premier centers in the league. He deserves the starting minutes, but just like Rob Edwards, just like Xavier Simpson, when you have these G League assignments around, it's going to take your minutes away. And you look at it this way, Poku's there, Roby's there, and Teo's there. That's awesome, but you got to remember there's still guys like Vid Krejci, for example, or Aaron Wiggins or Paul Watson Jr. that still have not come back, and they are going to be back just because of the current situation on the main rotation. So they never get the same amount of minutes from game to game, but they keep playing like all-stars in their systems. So all of them have been great. That's why I've loved this team. That's why I loved them last year. That's why I'm super hyped up for their game later on against Stockton. As for some other performers, these are kind of the guys that came in at the back end of the rotation. Jalen Horde played for 17 minutes, picked up six points, two rebounds, and two assists. Lindy Waters got to go in there as well, got eight points in 12 minutes, three of four from the field. Hit that one big three-pointer after the seven or six of seven paint shots you had in the third. Michael Benajay was out for a bit, and then Justin Jarowski also had some time. Neither of them scored though. And then Olivier Saar, who didn't get to play that many minutes either, only got seven. He ended this one with two points after hitting both of his foul shots inside the final two minutes of play so they have all looked great the last dude i didn't mention was scotty hobson he's been good all year 12 points in the starting rotation he played 25 minutes and they will be looking to cap the baseball set with another victory and then head down to the winter showcase with an eight and four record but this has been one hell of a team i've pondered doing a full-on uh, kind of breakdown of this roster in the next week or two because i do have a lot more time than usual just got to get the setup ready got to get the prep work ready because no one else is really talking about this team i think they deserve a lot more coverage so hopefully i can bring more to uh more of that to you guys in the near future and i'm gonna give you guys even more coverage of the thunder team and some potential trades in one second but first I want to let you guys know about my good friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook. Football fans, I'm sure we all love an action-packed, high-scoring NFL game, but with the latest no-brainer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, you'll be a winner once a single point is scored. New customers who bet just $1 on any team to score can win $100 in free bets. It's that simple. 
Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long, and DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Here's what you have to do for the offer. Go ahead and download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet just $1 on any team to score, and you win $100 in free bets if they score. You score with promo code TBPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wage required, one per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details, and if you have a gambling problem, Go ahead and call 1-800-GAMBLER. But guys, moving right along to the trade talk, there's been a couple rumors floating out and about in the last week or so when it comes to a pair of small forwards. Both of them are still on rookie contracts, one of which Kevin Knox the second with the Knicks and then Cam Reddish with the Atlanta Hawks. So I'm going to be talking about both of those two kind of what a mock trade with those guys would look like, whether I believe that fit really suits them and what the role would look like with Oklahoma City. I'm, and I'm going to start out with Kevin Knox here uh, just because he was kind of the first one to get in the conversation. And I think he's a little bit more reasonable when it comes to asking price, when it comes down to whether the Thunder would trade for him. You'll see in a second. But I think the price is pretty reasonable, and then given the circumstances with the New York Knicks, you would have to believe the asking price is not going to be uh, that terrible for a team like the Thunder that is loaded with draft equity. But you look at Kevin Knox, 22 years old now, fourth season in the league, former number nine pick. He walked in a draft day with the Fortnite suit on, like that was his own thing, but he had a pretty good rookie season. He had a 31-point game. I was watching a little bit earlier, actually. But his rookie stat line was 12.8 points, 4.5 rebounds, and 1.1 assists. And then he kind of dropped down to a role player in his sophomore season and his third year campaign. Now, he doesn't play. He's only played eight games this year. And the reason he was called up for the first time, or when he did get minutes, uh, was due to some issues when it comes to health and safety. He gets a shot, and he actually looked pretty good about a week ago. 18 points and five rebounds. Got to play one game after that, and then he's actually on the health and safety list right now, so he's not playing for the Knicks for probably the next two weeks. Not sure how long he's going to be stuck in that, but that was his main shot. That was the only legitimate chance he's gotten at minutes this year. Outside of that, he's been playing minimal, minimal time, so he's not a part of the Knicks' active rotation. When they're suiting up their first 10 or 12 guys, Kevin Knox is going to be outside of that, and that means... They're probably looking to move on from him. He's making 5.8 mil this season, and then he's going to have a qualifying offer because this is his fourth season in the league. It's a $7.9 million qualifying offer to keep him around. So if he does pick that up, he picks it up. If not, you're going to sign a new deal with him. But he just hasn't had many opportunities the last couple years, and he hasn't been all that impressive these last couple years either when it comes to production. So it puts him in a really weird spot when it comes to trade discussions because he's not really a hot commodity. The Knicks have not pushed him out to be that way, and he's going to be going into free agency pretty soon. And the Knicks, there's no indication they're going to keep him around. For a price tag of $7.9 million, 
Currently, they're having issues trading Kemba Walker, who's nearing about $8 million on his contract because he signed a new one after inking a, or getting a contract buyout with the Thunder earlier in the summer. So they don't want to have a dude worth $8 million that they're not going to play next season. They want to trade him. So it's pretty much, you give us a second round pick, you give us anything, we might make that deal with you. So the Thunder could be in play if they do need Kevin Knox. Now, do I think there's a spot in the rotation for Kevin? Honestly, I don't think it's certain. You look at this Thunder squad, yeah, they're always looking for young talent. He's 22 years old. You look at the small forward position right now. They have Lou Dortz, who is playing that true three. Josh Giddy's more of that two. And then the bench unit, there's not really a solidified number three or a small forward there. Kenrich Williams moves up there sometimes. Poku can be there in some rotations, but you don't have that true three. Kevin Knox could be that. However, where would he be taking minutes from? Because there's a decent amount of guys already on this rotation that I think would get minutes over Kevin Knox anyways. You look at someone like Ty Jerome. I think if the minutes come down to him or Knox, you'd probably prioritize Jerome and have Kenrich Williams in the rotation. You have Aaron Wiggins who might be getting more minutes. We'll see. You also have to look at um, whenever you're going to have a guy like Isaiah Roby or something, you know, do you think Roby is better than Kevin Knox? If that's a yes, you're definitely not trading for Knox because Roby can't even play in the active rotation right now. So there's so many guys that would kind of be in the discussion for these minutes right now. If you get Kevin Knox for just draft equity, a second round pick or an another one, sure, the price tag is going to be relatively nothing for you right now. But how are you going to make it work? I don't know if the opportunity uh, will really be there for Kevin Knox. And if you do give him that opportunity, you're going to hinder the opportunity of somebody else. And for someone that would get pushed out like a Jerome or something, has he deserved that? No, he's looked decent in his minutes. So kind of comes down to who you would prioritize in the long run, a guy like Jerome or a, a guy who still doesn't have his identity yet. And Kevin Knox. So if I'm the GM, if I'm Sam Presti, I probably would not touch Kevin Knox just because I feel like it would add more questions than answers to this rotation. There are a lot of questions, but a lot of those can be solved with front court help. If you're adding a guy like Kevin Knox, who's only going to be restricted to that three, it hurts more than it helps because there's so many different players that can play a variety of positions, whether it's two through four, three through five. There's no real need for a true three that like a position lock guy you know so I like him I've seen some tape I do think he's a decent enough shot creator off the catch and shoot he's not bad currently he's doing decent from three uh, and SGA was a teammate of his back in college so that gives you maybe a little bit of a connection try to rejuvenate his play uh, but I don't know I think if you want to do this you might sit until after this season ends, maybe bite in free agency if there's not a lot of offers. I would imagine he would get a couple uh, just as like a rebirth opportunity with him. If you do go for a trade, the offer is not going to be that much. So maybe you do take a flyer. That's what all these picks are for. Uh, you give him maybe a second rounder, two second rounders, and a guy like Gabrielle Deck, just a random fill-in player. You might be able to get this thing done because Deck... If the Knicks don't want him, he's just going to be around for the the rest of the season. Then he's done because it's non-guaranteed. And then they're off the books with Kevin Knox. And honestly, they could be done with Kevin Knox after this season. I think that's what's going to happen. But if they do get a first or if they do get seconds, which you're going to be giving them seconds, you're not giving them first round picks at this point. 
they will take it. So this is one where the market and the demand for Kevin Knox probably will not be that high. If you're going to make an offer, it will be in the next couple months, I believe. And hey, if you do get him, I'm not completely shutting it down because yes, I think there could be some untapped potential there for the value you're paying. It's really not that hefty of a price when you have all this draft capital, but you will have to kind of figure out the remainder of this rotation before you do that because it is a bit tough to fit him in based on the latest resume with him. When you look at Cam Reddish, it's a little bit different, I would say, in terms of situation, in terms of where he is in his career. He's doing all right. 22 years old for him as well, former number 10 pick. This is his third season as a pro, so he's going to have this season, next season, and then that's when restricted free agency will kick in for him. You're looking at a contract right now where he is making 4.6 mil. Next year, he's making 5.9, and then he's going to have an 8.1 million dollar qualifying offer. And I think this is a contract that's a lot better than Knox's. And you may be like, "Well, wait a minute," because with Knox, it could be a one-year rental if you choose to take that path. But with Cam Reddish, you're getting two years of evaluation with him, and then you get to make that decision. And for the Thunder. They're living and dying. They're not even dying. They're just living with all these different rookie contracts. 4.6 mil and 5.9 mil are not going to break you. They're not breaking your bank at all. With Kevin Knox, he's going to be making probably more than that $5 million price tag next year. And if you give him the qualifying offer, he indefinitely will be making more than that price tag. So that's why I like Reddish more. I think overall as a player too, he might be a bit of a better fit really decent shot creator. He's averaged double digits in all three of his seasons. Right now, he's posting 11.3 points, 2.7 rebounds, and 0.9 assists, and he's looked a lot better as of late as a shooter. I know late into last season, his little, um, you know, like playoff run, he was out there dropping 20 pieces, shooting way above 60% from the floor, couldn't stop him from distance. Obviously, that's too small of a sample, but he's carried on the three-point threat uh, ability to this year. He's shooting a career high 37.5% from distance, taking a little over four attempts per game. And then when you compare that to seasons of before, you're looking at him shooting below or around the 30% mark. So this is a big increase for Cam Reddish when you're looking at what this Thunder team could use. Could always use shot creators. Looking for someone that could be dynamic in space. Uh, that could be Cam Reddish. You want to have him as a catch-and-shoot player, though, and it looks like he would be uh, pretty solid in that role because he's in a system right now where you have Trey Young, and he's obviously going to have a lot of that ball-handling duty. And one of the things with Cam Reddish and one of the things uh, with the Atlanta Hawks, the opportunities have been hard to come by for a lot of players. Cam Reddish, for example, averaging 22 minutes per game. You have a lot of these other rookies that are having difficult times. We saw Nyeka Okongwu not too long ago playing with uh, College Park down in the G League. Like, just taking these assignments, it's hard to give solidified 30-minute roster cuts when you have Bogdanovich now on the team, Gallinari's on the roster, and then you have some other guys that have established themselves. DeAndre Hunter, when he's healthy, he's getting a lot of minutes. Kevin Huertas look good as a spot-up guy. So there's so many different players that are uh, supposed to be getting minutes they deserve to be getting minutes but you can't just dish it up 
uh, and good samples. The good comparison would be like the OKC Blue, for example. So many solid guys, you can't give all of them ample opportunities when you should. And even with the Thunder, they're dealing with this too when it comes to rookies, when it comes to Teo in the G League, when it comes to Isaiah Roby in the G League. This is just another situation of that at a much different level. And when you look at the financial situation, that is the reason why Cam Reddish is on the trade block. And that's why he was actually talked about last year of being in trades. Okungwu, I think he was the sixth or seventh pick two seasons ago. DeAndre Hunter, Kevin Huerter, Reddish, all four of those guys are on rookie deals. That's going to change pretty soon for them. It's going to hurt a lot when it comes to owners' pockets. They've already paid the two biggest sums in John Collins and Trey Young. But they're still giving out a lot of money to Danilo Gallinari. They're giving a lot to Bogdanovich as well. So it's tough to make the money work here. I think that's what they're trying to avoid. So what the asking price was based on Shams' report uh, was a first-round pick or like a young player to almost uh, restock the war chest almost. And when you look at the Thunder, they definitely can do that. They have the most supply in first-round picks for the next, what, like five, six years? Pretty much control other franchises at this point. And then you have a decent amount of young players under 23, but you also have some vets that could help them in a playoff push if they so choose to do so. And when you look at the Hawks, I think this would be a pretty good trade partner uh, in terms of making that deal happen. Because when you check out what the Hawks need, they need some budget beasts. Kenrich Williams is one of them. Two years, $4 million. Mike Muscala is also here. Two years. Don't think he's going to be traded with Kenrich also kind of a toss-up, but those two are options, and then they could get a first-round pick attached to things. They could get a first-round pick and then another player. I'll go into the player in a second, but uh, before you even get to that, you got to talk about, hey, do the Thunder even want a guy like Cam Reddish? I think if Reddish gets traded over here, he actually does get uh, a real shot Unlike maybe Kevin Knox. I think with Kevin Knox, you still get him, but it'd be harder to kind of justify the move. With Cam Reddish, he's had the resume, he's looked better as games have progressed, and I think you would be able to kind of retune that second unit to make him work for like 24 or 25 minutes per game. You'd have a unit where you have Trey Mann, who's kind of established himself as that backup one, and then you have that spot at the two, you have Reddish at the three, Poku's at the four, and then at the five, pick and choose whoever you want, Derek Favors or Mike Muscala. At that two... I think you keep Kenrich Williams around, keep him out of the trade discussions. When you look at him, this is a guy that will probably fetch a really solid offer. I don't know what, I don't know if you need to include the first round pick with Kenny Hustle, to be honest with you. It's such a good contract. Every time he steps out there, he's a positive influence on this Thunder team. And if you need a bench guy going into playoff time, you want Kenrich Williams on your side and you're going to get two seasons of it based off of that really generous contract that uh, the Thunder were able to strike with him off the Pelicans sign and trade. So I'd probably say no to having him on the table for this offer. Same goes for a guy like Mike Muscala, just because he'd want to stick around. I've heard Darius Baisley floated around in these conversations. It's an interesting um, proposition, like, because, you know, some are saying it's not a really good fit right now with Bays and Thunder. You might want to recheck it, get him a better situation, get another young piece that could be in a better situation here. I don't think it really works, though. Cam Reddish is not a four, 
who's going to play that four? Are you going to put Jeremiah down to the four and then Muscala up to the five or Favors up to the five? Is Poku going to be that big guy at the four now? Like, I don't think so. I don't think they're ready for that. Even though Darius Baisley has been shaky, it's kind of the best you have right now in this system, and Reddish will not fix it. So I think you can't have Baisley in there. The only time I'd say Baisley would be in these combos would be if you're trading for someone like a Marvin Bagley or something, where, you know, he's a power forward center. Baisley, he's been playing at the four, but he can also play at the three. Positionally, it does align. This one doesn't align. So the deal that I have come up with is a first round pick and Ty Jerome. And when you want to look at the first round picks, some might be upset at the the timing of this, but it would be this year's pick from the Phoenix Suns. This is one that has light protections on it. Obviously, they're not going to come to fruition. The Phoenix Suns are one of the best teams in the NBA right now. This is going to be a pick landing from 26 uh, to 30, given the current status of the standings. If it sticks, yeah, that's going to be a very, very late first round pick, and that holds a lot of value. Seems like there's a lot of gems coming in and out, given these last couple draft classes, and uh, seeing what the Thunder did last year, trading picks 34 and 36 to move up uh, to get Jeremiah at 32, they might still want that Phoenix Suns pick more than I might be letting out. They want to be able to package two picks, cons- uh, consolidate to get their guy, maybe in the 20s, early 20s. You would want to keep that Phoenix pick around, but for this mock trade, I'm going to say that is the selection because it's not a high quality first round pick. It's not like these other ones three or four years out where it's sort of a shot in the dark. You know what you're getting with this selection, and that's why that's the one slapped down on the table. So you get that uh, out of the way. You get Jerome out of there, who I think actually fits what the Hawks need pretty damn well. They need a backup point guard. Sharif Cooper's on the up and up, but he's playing with the G League right now. If you want an established guard, Tydrome's a very smart passer. He can play off the ball with Trey. And that kind of sets them up. And then for the Thunder, you're going to get two years of a lottery guard that a lot of people thought would be the star uh, during that lottery and kind of the surprise pick. Zion was the number one guy. Well, some people thought that it was Cam Reddish. And I think with the Thunder, he'd probably get more opportunities at proving himself. So with Reddish, I'd probably like that a little bit more than the Knox deal. Obviously, the prices uh, for Knox in particular wouldn't be that hefty. So if they do it, I'm on board. Uh, but yeah, those are the two kind of rumors floating around. If you guys have a different proposal or you guys have a different take on either of those two guys, make sure to let me know on my Twitter, just my name on there, or you can go to the pods at Thunderstick Pod. But other than that, though, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.